After fighting and coaching his way through a storied 47-year professional hockey career, Mike Melbury's gloves are again dropping to the ice for his next chapter as a radio host talking about the NHL, the Boston Bruins, and the hockey world. Brought to you by Ketchis Law. Since 1986, they've had the backs of every hardworking tradesman in New England who finds themselves injured on the work site. You pay nothing unless they win. So get your free consultation today at catcheslaw.com or by calling 508-321-7000. This is Gloves Off Hockey with our host, Mike Milbury, joining us live here in studio. Mike, it's been a wild week in the hockey world, but man, am I glad to have you back here in studio. Well, thanks. I wish uh, I wish your weatherman had given us a little bit better weather report. It sounds like it's going to be nasty for a while. Yeah, it's definitely not looking too good. But, you know, that's uh, winter in New England, especially with the drought and a bunch of other things we had to deal with this season. I'm not surprised that uh, Mother Nature's looking funny at us. Yeah, and what's this about you taking a day off tomorrow? Is that legal? Legal, I don't know about, but approved, yes. Nice. <laughs> uh, a couple of shout-outs uh, as we get started here. The first one is to John Grizzlick, or Grizz as he's known in the Boston Garden. For 54 years, he's been a member of the Bull Gang, and that's the crew that gets the ice ready for Bruins games or the parquet ready for Celtics games. 27 years in the old building, 27 years in the new building. It's amazing the new building's been around for 27 years already. But Doesn't even sound right. No, in, in any event, Grizz is also the dad of Matt Grizzlick, Bruins defenseman, and they live in Charlestown, grew up about a mile away from the garden, and unfortunately for Grizz, he was discovered to have cancer, and he, he found out in February, and rather than tell anybody, um, he just started radiation treatments. He'd leave work, walk over about the 15 minutes, 20 minutes to the Mass General Hospital, get his radiation treatments, and walk back to work, never telling anybody where he was going. Wow. I mean, he called work good therapy. I mean, it's amazing. But anyway, on the last day of his radiation treatment, his son posted a video of him ringing the bell, which is a signal that his radiation treatments have ended and it looks like he's in good shape and he's he's back to work. So good for him. But I wanted to, you know, he was he's been such a staple to all the players at the Boston Garden for so long. Such a good guy. And and now this is a dream come true to have his son playing for the Bruins. And um, we wish him all the best. I'm, I'm sure he's going to be fully recovered before long. And then there's Borja Salomon. This is a sad story. He, a Hall of Famer who played 16 years for the Maple Leafs, one of the toughest defenseman and you don't usually say that about Swedish players you say skilled or finesse players but this guy was tough as nails blocked shots did everything that you needed to do as a defenseman one of the all-time greats um he once got a nasty cut Gerard Glant his, his skate came up and cut him on the face for 250 stitches you know he just kept on playing through those things anyway he returned to Toronto this week to be saluted by his former teammates in the Toronto crowd. And it was an incredible moment, an incredible emotional moment. And he's a warrior. Unfortunately, he's lost the ability to speak. We can only wish him that, that he's comfortable and that his, somehow things turn around for him. But what a great player. And while I'm talking about Toronto, it was Hall of Fame week. So some great players got inducted. Players like Daniel Alfredson, 
the Sedin twins, you remember them from 2011, I'm sure, Ben. Who could forget? And Roberto Luongo. And their common theme, none of them won a cup. Not one of them. All these great players. I mean, Alfredson, great two-way guy, played in a cup final against Anaheim, but his team came up short. And then you can recall that both Sedins and Luongo were on that 2011 Vancouver club that jumped out to a 2-0 lead over the Bruins. And then Sean Thornton came back in and made a big hit and a big turnaround of emotion for the Bruins. But Vancouver wound up playing Game 7 at home, and the Bruins just never looked back. It was a a win for the ages for them. But when all those guys got inducted into the Hall of Fame, they all couldn't stop themselves from talking about the fact that their biggest regret was never winning a cup. And that's... It's, you know, those guys were so, the, the Sedin, they were like mental telepathy out there. I don't know if you recall them. Some of the, uh, I think the NHL network has a, a series of goals, their, their highlight goals, top five goals of their career. And it just, it seems like mental telepathy played some sort of a role because I, I don't know how they could find each other. Blind passes behind the back, but it was, it was, it was incredible. And Luongo, of course, won a lot of games, drafted him on Long Island. Yes, I traded him. That was a big mistake. Um, 24 players in the Hall of Fame have not won a Stanley Cup. But while I'm at it, we'll stay on the Hall of Fame theme. It was the 50th anniversary of the 72 summit between Team Canada and Russia. And, And I know it's before your date of birth, Ben, but this was the first time professional players could play in international play. And the Russians took a real risk you know, not knowing whether they could match up to them, but they had enough people there thinking they could get it done. And so they lined up this tournament. Uh, Canada was supposed to blow them out in, in, in the eight-game series. Four, the first four in Canada, the second four in Russia. The first game in Montreal, seven to three. It looked like it was all one way for Russia, and they were so far ahead of the Canadians in terms of conditioning. If you, as you may recall or may not recall, in that day and age, The players came to training camp for a six-week stint so they could get in shape. The Russians trained all year long. You know, they were, excuse me, they were in the military and they were, they were finely tuned. Anatoly Tarasov was their father of hockey and these guys came ready to play, but they were, they were intimidated. But after game one, not so much. Canada came back to win the second game. They tied the third and then going to Vancouver and then a big game, the Russians smoked them. And it was after that game that Phil Esposito came out to be interviewed on the ice, practically in tears because the team had been booed mercilessly by the Vancouver fans because this was a, this was a point of pride for Canada. There was no expectation whatsoever that they would lose this series. But they went off to, to Russia, and of course, in Game 5, the Russians beat them again. So they're down three games to one in this series with just three games left. So they got to sweep the deck in order to win this series. And if the th- thing about the series, and I want people to Google them, YouTube it, whatever you have to do, there's a CBC documentary on it. And I think it's so significant, which is such a significant moment in the development of, of international ice hockey. It had all sorts of drama. Uh, there was Bobby Hull couldn't play because he signed a contract with the WHA. Imagine losing with a top goal scorer in, in the National Hockey League for business reasons. Right. Frank Mahovlich, a Hall of Famer, he was so paranoid in Russia, he thought they were bugging his his lights and and he had to go home for a while. Um, Bobby Clark, 
in Game 6 put a slash on Valery Harlamov, the Russians' best player, that was the equivalent of David Ortiz swinging for the fences. It was an, it just flat-out assault and battery. It broke Harlamov's ankle and marked the end of his, of course, his participation in the series. And I can remember J.P. Parisi, Zach Parisi's dad, attacking a referee, threatening to hit him over the head with a stick. Uh, and right as they, they entered the eighth game and they still need to win, they're down three, game, three, three goals to one. They come back to tie it up. And at this point, the Russians inform Alan Eagleson, who was heading the Canadian team, that if the score remains a tie, that the Russians will win based on goals four. And that just sent them into a rage. There was like, it was like, it was one of the wildest scenes you'll ever see. And then with 34 seconds left, Paul Henderson scored the goal, heard round the world in Canada anyway, and restored their pride and dignity. Anyway, 50th anniversary of that series. Look it up, watch it. It's so much fun. And uh, I, I feel bad for my buddy, Harry Sinden, who was, was coach of that team and wasn't able to make it to Toronto for that reunion. But it's a, it's a memory worth reviving. And, um, you know, I'm sure they'll send them any kind of memorabilia that they have there. But it was a, it was a great tribute to a great team and a great series. Absolutely. You know, and even just hearing your retelling of it, Mike, I mean, just an absolute barn burner internationally. You just, I mean, obviously that would set the stage for the Olympics later on, but I mean, Oh my goodness! What a story! And folks, yeah, no, if you it was, haven't seen it, you, yeah, you got to take a look at it. And, and it was um, it was really war on ice, and uh, we're still, you know, feeling the effects of the Cold War. And and nobody knew how good these Russian players were. It didn't take long though before the NHL realized that players like Fetisov and Makarov and Larionov were just as good as anybody in the National Hockey League. Mm-hmm. And then there was a steady stream of you know, pilfering of any uh, of Russian players by the NHL teams in the coming years, and and I think we all found out that that the Russians were plenty tough enough too. They could play despite the fact that the Canada turned it into a sort of a not a really a goon fest. There were a few fights, but it was just it was just brutal to watch it. And uh, but the Russians played through it with, with some some pride and dignity of their of their own. It was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fun one, so look it up, people, will you? It really was. And, you know, I am I forgot all about the uh, the date of that, so thank you for bringing it up. Somebody actually asked me the other day, we were talking about uh, goaltenders uh, in past days, and somebody brought up, of course, Vladislav Tretiak, and they said, well, where was he? Why did he ever get in the league? I had to do a little bit of homework on that one, Mike, but apparently he was actually drafted in 1983 by the Canadians, but the Soviet Union would absolutely not grant his release, therefore... He never played in the big game. I thought he played a little bit for Chicago, did he not? It might have been at the very, very tail yeah, end in an emergency. End, but he was but uh, in his clearly... Pe- in his peak, yeah, they yes. wouldn't let him go. Uh, yeah, that's right. And that was the case for a lot of people. But I had I had the chance to do some some ESPN work and, and talk to people like Fatisov, who could tell you just an amazing story of how hard it was to be a player and under the thumb of Viktor Tikhonov, who was you know, their longtime coach, and it was just brutal with them and it held every loss over their heads and, and made life miserable for them. They were happy to see him go. And, and uh, you know, but in the meantime, I think he won something like 11 straight world championships and Olympic gold medals. It was it was the heyday of Russian hockey in terms of international play. But And what a set of eyebrows on that guy. 
<laughs> All right, let's take a quick break, and we're going to get to our guest, Alan May, in just a minute. Right back at it here at Gloves Off Hockey on 1510 WMEX with your host, Mike Milbury, right here on 1510. All right. Uh, joining us now from the Washington Capitals, well, not the Capitals, from NBC Washington, is an old friend of mine, Alan May. How are you, Alan? Hey, Mike. I'm doing great. And it's NBC Sports Washington for a little bit longer. I'm not sure how much longer. The owner of the Capitals uh, ended up purchasing our network. He owns the arena, the basketball team, the WNBA team, and a bunch of other things, and soon to be, I think, a baseball team. Not too shabby. Wow, and that from a kid from Lowell who came up with nothing. I heard the story. I don't know if you ever heard the story of this, Sal. Is that Ted Leonsis, the, the owner that you're referring to, uh, lived in Lowell and in, in the neighborhood looking for work, and he, he knocked on a door and got a job cutting lawns. And he did such a good job cutting the lawns and fertilizing and everything that the guy took a liking to him and directed him towards Georgetown and started his career in that direction. Pretty cool. Well, you know what, I... I actually read his book, and it was very interesting. He actually started out in the projects in New York City and then ended up, they moved to Lowell to be around extended family. So the the trips and turns in his life have been unbelievable, and how he got into, you know, computers and the Internet and all of that in its infancy is just all just by accident from just a random assignment that he had over the summer one year in college. So. It's a pretty amazing story. He's an, actually an, a very amazing guy and an incredible owner. And uh, when you think of he knows every one of our names. I know, I'm on TV, so he's going to know my name because my name's always there and it's a simple name. But he knows the name of every employee in the building, people that park the cars, the dressing room attendants, you know, the people that work in concession stands. So he's, he's kind of a, he's, he's an amazing individual, and uh, I'm a big fan of the guy. Yeah, well, he's not a big fan of mine. I used to critique Alex Ovechkin on occasion on NBC. <laughs> he didn't like that too much, but he'll have to get over it, and so will I. Um, listen, we were just talking about some guys that went into the Hall of Fame this week. Alfredson, Sedin Twins, Luongo. Got any memories of them? Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, they were, I think, of the Sedin Twins, and they wowed me uh, every step of the way in their career. And, you know, it was like the old shared brain thing. And it was absolutely amazing to watch them play and, and, you know, do the cycle down in the offensive zone and how they move the puck through the, the neutral zone. And whoever was lucky enough to play with them just had to have their stick on the ice all the time because they were going to get a great scoring opportunity. And I, I watched their first game of their career, and I watched their very last game. And it was I was working those nights, and I hurried home so I could watch the finale in their games. And, uh, and I actually had them on my show and interviewed them during the pandemic. And... Uh, I love these guys, and I'm actually going to go to Vancouver, and I've got a, a mountain I'm going to climb with them or, or try to break their record. And uh, they're pretty cool guys, and I was so happy to see them get into the Hall of Fame. You know, we were just talking about it. None of those guys won a cup. I mean, they, they went to the Game 7 against the Bruins in 11, the the Twins and Luongo, and Alfredson went to a Stanley Cup final, but none of them broke through to grab the brass spring, and they all talked about it in their Hall of Fame time. Well, you know what? You didn't win one, and I didn't win one. And, you know, it doesn't diminish anyone's career. And I, I think at the end of the day, you know, I've always asked people, like, you want to win that. And that that's your ultimate goal as a player, and it's all part of it. But, you know, I, I ask people a lot of, a lot of times, and, and uh, usually reporters and, and guys like that, and I go, hey, what would you take? Would you take a, a three-year career in the NHL 
the NBA, the NFL, and you you win three rings right off the bat, you make the rookie minimum or whatever the rookie salary is, or would you rather be the guy that played for 20 years, made the league average every year after your first three years, and you didn't win a cup? And when I think of it, you know, you can buy a lot of championship rings on eBay and Amazon and places like that of players who are, are desolate and, you know, on hard times. And, you know, it's a distant memory to those players. But, you know, I don't think it diminishes the career of those players. I, I, I thought they put their best foot forward. I think anyone that ever played with the Sedins would be proud to be their teammate and say that they gave their all to win every night. And there's a, a magic potion you have to be a part of to win a Stanley Cup. And you have to have everyone. It's got to be the right GM, coaching staff, uh, and all of your players. And then you have to have a lot of luck, and you've got to be injury-free. And it's all got to come together at the right time. And I was fortunate enough in my career, uh, when you traded me years ago, to be around the Edmonton Oilers when they beat your Boston Bruins. When, <laughs> that was when Harry, was not me. <laughs> okay, when, Ter- when Terry was still the coach, and when you look inside the dressing room of the Oilers, there was definitely a, a completely different magic potion than on the Bruins' side. Because if you did a draft and you put all those players together and you were going, okay, I can pick a player from either the Bruins or the Oilers, you know, you'd pick, you know, Wayne Gretzky would go first and then you go to the Boston side, you'd have to pick between Borky or, or, or Cam Neely at that time. And then you'd go Oiler, 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 all the way down the lineup pretty much. And so you look at it, you have to have a special ingredient. You guys had a special ingredient a few times with the Bruins where, you had really good teams and everything, but not quite enough. And then injuries, they just popped their head up. And I, I think when, you're, when you were coaching, you beat my team, uh, and we lost going into the round in the third round. You guys went on the finals to lose the Oilers in 90, was we lost our best goal scorer in Dino Cicerelli with a knee injury and our best offensive defenseman in Kevin Hatcher with a knee injury. And that basically blew us out of the water because we were too blue-collar and we didn't have, I think, the high-end players like you guys had. We didn't have a, a Ray Bork all of a sudden, and, and we didn't have a Cam Neely. So I, I just think you have to be so lucky to get there. And when you talk about those players, not everyone can win it, but I don't think it diminishes your career by not winning it. Because there's a lot of guys that are extra players that win it. You'd swear they, they think they should be in the Hall of Fame. But uh, it, it's, it's tough to get there, and I'm happy for everyone that gets to do it. And, and I don't think we should think any less of play, players that don't ever make it win the championships in their careers. Yeah, well, I had a couple guys that come to mind, Brad Park and John Rattel never won it, and their career certainly is not diminished by by not having a ring on the finger. They were just so much fun to play against. And you talked about injuries in 90, that the game we clinched against you was game four, and Bob Beers now does the radio for the Bruins, got hurt. That was a huge loss for us. And then in game two of the series against the Oilers, Mark Messier gets so ticked off at Dave Poole and checking him that he cross-checked him to the ice, cross-checked him again, and Neil and uh, Poole wrecked his knee, and that was the end of our chances. So a lot of factors go into it, but a lot of factors. Oh, yeah, and, you know, I, but, yeah, and it, the injury factor is so huge. But, you know, one of the things that Mark Messier created his own destiny for the Oilers in that playoff series by throwing those cross-checks because that's how the game was played back then. And I guarantee he'd probably deny it now, but back then, he wanted to probably eliminate him from the playoffs, and that was the type of person Mark was as a player. He was vicious, but it, it's uh, you have to be so lucky to get through the playoffs without having major and catastrophic injuries. Yeah, he was uh, he was something else, and you know, I actually I've had conversations with guys like Keith Jones about who would I pick 
who's my who would I pick top three forwards? And I usually say Lemieux, and then people come to me and say who would be next. And obviously there would be Gretzky, right? But I I, I say no, I'd take Messier because if he played Messier against Gretzky, he'd beat the snot out of him and beat him into submission. What do you think? Well, I'm with you, but I would go 100% against you on the Lemieux over Gretzky, and I'd go Gretzky and Messier because I grew up watching that, and I got to be in the dressing room with those guys as an extra player (laughs) and just to see how they carry themselves. And, you know, seriously, as a kid from Edmonton and growing up there, to be in the dressing room with all your idols, it was kind of like being at a reality show before those awful things ever existed. And, you know, to, to witness how these guys carried themselves and, and to watch the magic of Wayne Gretzky throughout the playoffs so many different times and what he is able to do in his career, uh, I, that's the perfect one-two punch. And when you think of now, teams that go all the way, you, you really – it used to be two centers. Now you have to have three to go all the way and win yourself the Stanley Cup. And, and you've got to have – you've got to be so strong on the middle. And, and it's usually the top three now. You can get – you have a great season with two, but you need three. I think of the Pittsburgh Penguins and their back-to-back Stanley Cup wins. And it was Crosby, Malkin, and Nick Benino. And you'd look at that and people go, Nick Benino. Well, there's a lot of great qualities about that third-line center that had a line that wasn't just out there to check. They were putting in timely offense. And, and you know, the, these were the guys that were speaking up in the room and kicking guys in the ass and motivating them and, and pushing them to do the right thing at all times and fight their injuries. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on the Messier part. You and I can disagree on the – on the well, Lemieux and the Gretzky part. But, you know, I'll never bet against Wayne Gretzky because, you know, the all-time stats don't lie, the amount of Stanley Cups. And, and, and you know what, he did stay healthy, and you can't belabor. You know, you, you can't put anyone down for being hurt. And Mario overcame a lot, and I, I, I hated playing against him all the time because he could single-handedly kick your team in the ass and knock you out of a game. Well, that's why I say him. And, I you know, the guy had cancer, and he had major back surgery. And... um Having played against them both, I found not that it was easy to play against Gretzky, not that it was easy to defend him. You know, we had Stevie Casper climb in his shorts and stay with him the entire game. But we had moments, we had games where we could quiet him down. But there was, with Lemieux, he was so big, he was so, his wingspan was so great. I mean, he could go to the front of the net, he could go to the slot, he could go to the half wall. There was, there was just nothing he couldn't do when he was, on but the health part yeah he didn't play as many games as Wayne didn't win as many rings as as Wayne but I just didn't find that there was any way to defend him yeah and you know what and you think of Steve Casper in today's rules he'd be the all-time penalty minute leader and he probably (laughs) would have you know if they if they had foul outs in the NHL he he would have fouled out every game because he couldn't really do anything other than hook and hold and it wasn't just a little bit of a hold it was like Two arms wrapped around a player's other bicep or, you know, water skiing down the ice with the old hook. And I, I tell people all the time, when I went from my first year of playing pro hockey, it was in the, the coast before guys were making the NHL, and I got to play for you. And I said, we used to have these back-checking drills where the guy would be two strides in front of us. We'd chase him down, and Mike would have us skewer the guy with our stick, not through him, but we'd wrap the guy up, tie him up, and that's how you backcheck back then. You put you put your stick through a guy, you impeded his progress, and then you rode him out to the boards, and it was all legal. And well, it wasn't legal. The refs just didn't call anything back then. And it was you know that was part of the game. And and that's how I think of Gretzky and Lemieux. You look at the numbers. The coaching for the most part wasn't that great uh, throughout hockey back then. I, I think you were the 
first coach and one of the few coaches ever had that had details of, of how to do things on face-offs and different things that we had to do. And there wasn't a lot of structure with most teams. And it was about line matchups and getting your guys out there. But then the guys who created offense, they had to deal with so much more in the form of hooking and holding, being slashed, cross-checked, you name it. Uh, the things that we used to do to try to keep the better players off the scoreboard was amazing. And, you know, they'd all be penalties now. All those defensive tactics would all be penalties. But back then, we were getting a whole lot of attaboys from the coaches for doing those things. <laughs> and, you know, it was Lemieux that came around and started to make a, a, a squawk about it and got lots of those rules changed so that he could open up the game a little bit uh, in, in a selfish way, but in a better way in the end for the league, don't you think? You know what? I, I thought one of the things, I like the rule changes, and I, you know, I'm all into the evolution of the game. And, you know, from those old videos we watch of players, people go, well, it was awful. I said, no, it was hard back then. That's The game was different. The equipment was different. The technology was different with anything. You know, flat hockey sticks, uh, flat blades on the ice, a flat curve, no curve whatsoever. Uh, you know, basically everyone had the same hockey stick, and the skates were basically floppy old leather things that were like old leather cowboy boots and no support whatsoever. It was a completely different game. But, you look, I felt they over-rotated on a lot of the rules when they came out of the lockout back when they did. And I thought they made it a lot more dangerous in the terms of, you know, physical contact because we used to ride players into the boards where you'd take them and angle a guy and you never left your skates. You'd try to drive the guy through the boards, but you'd be with him. So it wasn't like you were hurling him into the boards. And they basically made the rules so you had to have high-speed impact in the middle of an intersection, like two cars that ran a red light. And, you know, I, I think there's just been a lot more carnage with the way the rules have changed. So, you know, I'm, I'm not for all of the changes, uh, for a lot of them. And I was sick of the can opener, which, you know, defensemen did forever, where they put their stick between your legs and you couldn't go anywhere. And I thought, just call that. And, you know, the, the thing with the stick slashing, where you knock a guy's stick out of his hand. I remember you yelling at me when I got my stick knocked out of my hand for, you know, not, not, not being in the game and hold on to my stick. And now that's a penalty when someone chops your stick like that. So yeah. I think some my of least favorite penalty of, in the rule book, least favorite yeah, automatic a, slash. And I, yeah. And you know, the other thing, the, I, I, I liked the over the glass, the puck over the glass penalty. Cause I remember playing against Randy Carlisle specifically. And I could, you know, he, he would hook you and hold you like no one. And I don't know if that guy was ever in shape because he looked like fat as hell out there. <laughs> and, but, and he was slow, but he jabbed you and you couldn't get around him. But then, anytime you got a good forecheck on his team, or you had a good puck cycle, you know, below the goal line, up the half wall, if he'd get the puck, he just turned to the boards and send it in the thirtieth row, and it was nonstop. You'd play the Winnipeg Jets, and they had the long commercials up in Canada when you were playing up there, and then you'd have about forty pucks inside in the like Randy Carlisle. It felt like he threw a puck in the stands all the time. So I'm all for the puck over the glass penalty, and. Uh, and the, another pet peeve I have at the penalties is the four-minute minor for a drop of blood. And the reason that bothers me is because I remember when, if you touched anyone's face with your stick when you and I played, there was hell to pay. No matter how hard it was, there was hell to pay. And if it was a guy like Gretz or, or say, you touch Ray Bork, you had to answer to everybody. And, and, and then if it was a vicious one, it, it, was, it was hell on ice. And it was kind of cool, but... Guys learn their lessons not to do that, and I think we see too much of that now uh, where guys are looking for a drop of blood on their pinky. And uh, 
I, I, I like the old way when the guys used to rule it and say, okay, we're going to keep the sticks down. Because I, I don't remember the sticks in the face as much. I, I think before you and I played, it was a lot different with the sticks to the face. And then the game, you know, as it evolved, it became a thing. So, you know, a couple of pet peeves I have with the calls. But by and large, it's a super fast game. Guys are so talented. 99% of the guys are in shape. Uh, it's, I feel like there's too many coaches if they want to improve scoring. I think you should only have one or two coaches on the bench, not six guys. There's <laughs> not even like enough room. Hey, for- listen, we got to take a yeah. quick break. Can I get you back on for some, some cap stock? Can you hang Absolutely. in there for a little longer? Okay, thanks. Absolutely. We'll Mike. be right back to you. Welcome back to Gloves Off Hockey with your host, Mike Milbury, taking your calls at 781-834-9639. Right back at a flash, Mike. Yes. All right, we're talking to Al May from the Washington Capitals, their analyst, and uh, I kind of want to know what you think about their, well, what were the expectations coming into the season? Well, I think the Washington Capitals, after last season, they were a 100-point team, and they were in the wild card, and, you know, how many times do you have every team in the conference have 100 points and make the playoffs, and, you know, I thought they thought they could build on that with the additions because they knew they were going to start the season without Nick Backstrom, and they filled in with Dylan Strom, who had a really good year last season in Chicago, and they upgraded their goaltending. But they've been absolutely ravished by injuries this season, and it's just become nonstop. And it's been amazing. So right now I'd say they're, you know, they're two games under five they They're probably where they should be because – you know, most nights are playing so shorthanded, and no one in their right mind would have assembled a team like this unless they were tanking. So you still got the grade eight Alexander Ovechkin playing, but right now uh, they're just trying to tread water and hope they can get guys back before they. And what is the story with Backstrom? Is there a chance he can get back? I mean, this hip injury has been bugging him for a long time now. Yeah, well, he he. I think he flew to Belgium this summer and had a, a somewhat different procedure than everyone else that's ever done it. And from what I heard yesterday is his progress is phenomenal, and he's been pain-free for the first time since, like, 2015. Uh, he's been on the ice, and what they're going to do different this year is they let him come back last year, and he thought he was all right, but I saw him walk, and his left leg looked like it was about an inch and a half shorter than the right. It looked even just awful to walk, let alone skate. He only had one gear, and it was medium. And uh, so, he, you know, he got by all in smarts last year, but he just didn't have enough. And if they can get him back, it's going to be such a huge boost to everything. The power play, I don't know if he's going to be able to penalty kill like he used to, but in the face-off circle, the leadership department, which, you know, not enough people get, you know, players don't get enough credit for for how important that is. But if they can get Nick Backstrom back, it, it'll be completely different because all of a sudden Dylan Strome, who's been playing very well uh, at center in the second spot, you know, you can move him to the wing or you can move him down to the third line and, you know, all of a sudden your team's way stronger. So if they can get Nick Bax from their number one center back, it's all of a sudden take a few games to get him back in rhythm, I think they're going to be a lot better off. And Tom Wilson is still out. What's his – when can they expect well, to see him? That wrecking ball is just fun to watch. And I, I, I miss well, yeah. him not playing games. And he loves to be a menace. And, you know, he's a guy that scored 24 goals, I think, last year. Um, and he blew his ACL out. And – I've never had a knee injury, but I do know that they're going to take their time with this. They're not going to let, you know, players say they're ready and they come back and they look good and they skate, but they've got to let that muscle mature. So he's going to come back late December, early January, 
And to me, of all the players missing, he's the most important. He puts the fear in every player on the ice. Defensemen don't want to go retrieve the puck when he's forechecking. And, you know, it's funny, for a guy that, you know, had such a bad reputation his first few years, he's got a great skill level. He's a fast skater. He's a powerful skater. You know, he scores goals on one-on-one moves where he walks around defensemen now. But he never forgets who he is as a player. And he always maintains the physical part if they – you know, someone does something that they shouldn't be doing out there to one of his teammates, he makes them answer. And sometimes, you know, he's smart enough to go over and to talk talk to the other team's bench and say, hey, one more time, I'm going after this guy. And it's the old school way, but he's going to be back then. And the Capitals right now, when you look at how this team was constructed, you know, they were trying to buy time for him. So they traded for Connor Brown, who was a really good player in, in uh, Toronto, then they traded him to Ottawa. He scored, I think, 21 as a career high. So they thought he'd be a stopgap, a lot like uh, Dylan Strom has been here. And he blows his ACL out four games into the season. TJ Oshie goes out again. So your top three right wingers all of a sudden are out of the lineup. And that's about $16 million, $17 million of right wing. So now everyone's elevated and you've got guys playing out of position. So as I said earlier, no one would have constructed the team the way it is and the way it was dressed last night against the Florida Panthers. Well, you when you think of uh, Backstrom, Oshie, and Wilson, <laughs> that's a pretty good line right there. Uh, however you want to slice it, uh, and taking them out of commission is gonna is gonna hurt you. They're they're not young. They're half their roster is over thirty. I think they're the oldest team in the league, if I'm not mistaken. Do you think they can? Well, regroup? you know, it, it, it yeah changes on a nightly basis, and, and you think of it. You know, they've got, you know, uh, Alexander Vetchkin's 37, Kuznetsov's 30, Lars Eller's like 33, Garnet Hathaway, a fourth liner, who's 30, but he had a late start, Connor Sherry's 30. I don't think I'm worried about the guys that are 30, and Ovi still finds a way to get the job done. But when I look at their defensemen, you know, Carlson's 32, Nick Jensen's 32, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, who plays in the third pair, but he, he's kind of a fresh NHL player. He's 31. Uh, you have, just you look at the players, uh, Eric Gustafson, who's 30. Matt Irwin's 34. Who's in the lineup right now because Dmitry Orloff is out. And Dmitry Orloff is kind of an unsung hero on this team. He's their best all-round defensive defenseman. Moves the puck very well, physical. And he's been out. And since he's been out, the goals against has gone up drastically. And John Carlson was out a couple weeks. Uh, so not having those two guys, all of a sudden everyone's elevated in the lineup again. And You know, I don't know how much of this has to do with age. But, you know, they're hamstring, back, groin type of injuries. And I think over time, those are the things that end up getting to you. No matter how well you maintain yourself during the offseason, uh, it's been happening. And I know that the year they played the Bruins two years ago in the playoffs, that 56-game season, the last two weeks of the season, almost all of the top players ended up out of the lineup, and they were all muscle pull. And it was Ovechkin was out. All of a sudden, uh Backstrom was out of the lineup. Lars Eller was out of the lineup. John Carlson, TJ Oshie, all around the same time, guys started dropping like flies. And with that condensed schedule, I think that's what got the best of them. So, you know what, they're on a hope and a prayer right now, and maybe these guys being off right now, there's less wear and tear, and when they can get back in the lineup, maybe they've got enough juice left in them to get into the playoffs, find a way to make the playoffs, and then do something in the playoffs. But Right now, it's not looking too good for them, and they just got to buy time to stay close to 500 as possible. You know, when you get in situations like this, 
uh, you kind of like to turn around and look back to your goaltending and say, you got to steal us a few games. Do they have the guys that can do, does, does Washington have the goalie tandem that can do that? Well, you know what? They did, but I think what's happening now with, with the amount of injuries they have and the defensemen being out is that I don't think they're playing the right system, the right style. And last night in Florida, they were trying to go back and forth with, with a very offensive hockey team and on the road, and they didn't survive that first 10 minutes. They didn't survive the first 10 minutes in Tampa, the game before the first period in Tampa. They were down 4 nothing, And I think they've got to batten down the hatches and play a way de- more defensive brand of hockey because the skill level is not there to go against the other teams. So I, I think right now they're hanging their goaltenders out to dry. Last night there were all types of missed coverages in the defensive zone, and you're putting your goaltender in backdoor play situations where they don't stand a chance, and then wide open passes to a player you know, below the hash marks. It's one-on-one against the goalie, and that's not fair. So I think what's happened is you also put too much pressure on your goaltenders that if they don't play a perfect game, all of a sudden they can lose their confidence too. So I, I think they have to have a moment of clarity within the coaching staff where they decide, all right, you know, this is how we wanted to play, but you've got to coach to what you have. And you're a general manager and a coach, and you have to coach to what you have. And I don't think they're coaching to what they have right now. And that's something that really I think has to be, you know, the general manager's got to talk to the coaching staff, in my opinion, and say, hey, we got to change it up and we got to buy some time and we got to slow it down and protect our goaltenders because they're the guys that actually got us to where we are and got us the wins we are, the seven wins. It was our goaltenders have stolen some games, but you can't expect them to do it every night. If, if you're going to be letting high-danger chance, getting outshot by double every single night, that's not a recipe for success. Yeah, You know, the, the other team that's out of the playoff picture right now is Pittsburgh. You know, they went down uh, memory lane with all their signing of older guys. Do you think – I mean, I, the way I see it in this Eastern Conference – is the teams that are in the top eight right now will finish in the top eight. I don't think Washington can make up the lost ground. I know it's only, we haven't even got to the, the quarter pole, but the way it looks to me that Washington was going to have a tough time getting there with, you know, when you're looking at long-term injuries like this, and there's no guarantee that Backstrom comes back at 100%. But Pittsburgh, I thought, you know, it's sort of one last time like the Bruins, and it hasn't worked. Well, when I look at the at the Pittsburgh Penguins, you know, I don't mind them re-signing their older players. And the, I guess the problem with me is I'm a loyal guy. And when you win a Stanley Cup with your superstars, you know, and it's not like they were held ransom by Malkin for his dollar amount or, or Latang, and they didn't sign long, long term. But they're still the heartbeat of that team, and they're still putting up great numbers. But I look at there, there's not enough in the bottom six for me with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and they, they don't have enough physical jam, and I think that's getting to them right now. And it reminded me of the team that they had before Mike Sullivan became the coach and the year or two before that when Mike Johnson was coaching. When I looked at it, people were all over Crosby and all over Malkin. I was like, no way. They don't have a team. They don't have the right defenseman on that team. They don't have grit in their bottom six. They don't have straight-line players. And they've got all these little players that are kind of playing east-west that don't have enough in them. And as soon as Mike Sullivan came in there, who I think is a pretty damn good coach, they were skating in straight lines. They were shooting the puck from everywhere. They had net front presence. And right now, I don't think they have enough of those types of players. So I still expect the Penguins to be able to do something. Because I I never count a guy like Sidney Crosby out. Uh, And Evgeny Malkin, you know, he has to be pushed, I think. And I, I 
believe that the relationship that those guys have, and they got Jake Gensel, they still have a lot of good hockey players there. And I they can do. see them going on a 10, a 10 game heater. And I don't see the Washington Capitals today going on that with the roster that they have. So, as I said, you know, they're going to be, and I thought this coming into this season with the age of the team, is that they are going to be a last weekend of the season in or out of the playoffs, the last week. And I, I think once you get Tom Wilson back, you know, I love watching this guy play. And I think all of a sudden when he comes back, it's a phenomenal boost. But that's a long ways away. That yeah, it is. That, five, that, that five, brings us. Week. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's still five, six weeks away. But in the meantime, if Oshie comes back, this guy was out five times last year. Now he's already out. So I don't know how much hockey, good hockey, he has left in him. But, you know, it's better than having some of the players they have out there if he can maintain in the lineup. And then the same, Dmitry Orloff, they need to get him back on the ice because he's so critical to penalty kills and, and certainly five-on-five. Five. And right now where the Capitals are losing all their games is five-on-five play. One of the worst uh, records, goals for and goals against in the National Hockey League when it comes to five-on-five. Five. And it's not enough. And so that's why I say they've got to play a different brand of hockey right now and slow the other teams down. But I, I will yeah. not write them off as long as you still have a guy like Ovi, you have John Carlson, and I, I still believe in the two yeah. goaltenders that they have, but they have to get help. And I think maybe right. they need a guy like you pulling the, pulling the finger on a trade. And I think Brian McClellan has to you know, go with some Mike Milbury and start deciding, okay, I've got I to gotta disrupt this room and I've got to get some help and see if I can find a willing trade partner to get a player that can help, you know, give us a kick in the ass. Right. And listen, but I want to get to the Bruins for a minute. I mean, this is just startling, this record of 14-2. and two. I mean, I, I never saw this coming. I mean, Krejci came back. Bergeron decided to come back. I mean, they're good players, but they're 37 and 36 now. And Lindholm had been hurt. McAvoy was out. Marchand was out. And all of a sudden, you know, Happy-go-lucky Jim Montgomery comes in to, to replace Hardo, Bruce Cassidy, and they can do no wrong. It's been a remarkable thing to watch. Have you watched them much? Well, uh, yeah, I have, and I love watching them play, and I love Jim Montgomery as a coach, and I, I've followed his story as a coach throughout his career from the USHL, the NCAA, and you know, into his debacle in Dallas. But he, the guy's a phenomenal coach. He's got his life in order. And one of the things I do know about Monty is that he's an incredible communicator. And he, he doesn't slide against the players when, you know, it's not like he claims the victories when they win and, and puts it on the players and points out players when they lose. And he, he's an incredible communicator. But I, I, I'm surprised, and I should not be surprised. I, I think Patrice Bergeron is the most professional player in the National Hockey League. And, you know, he's going to give you his best every night. But I just don't know how long he can last. And the way Krejci looked opening night from, from then on, I just think uh, having two, what are they, both 37 or one's 37, one's 36. That's right. And I, I think you and your top two centers, I think there's going to be some wear and tear as the season goes on. And they're getting players back. And, you know, to get Brad Marchand back, and it's like he never missed a beat. The guys are right about that. Is, it's crazy how good he's his, been. Yeah, people hate his guts. I think he's the best left winger. I'm just going to go Eastern Conference because I don't want to argue with everyone, but I think he's the best player in the Eastern Conference on the, on the left wing, and I think he has been for years. He is all round a penalty killer, a power play, five on five. He can dish the puck, score goals, agitate, get under anyone's skin, and I love it. And people in D.C. hate when I say how much I love him, 
But I love guys that put their heart and soul and play as hard as he does every night. And the skill level, and I think by playing with, what was it, that World Cup of Hockey where he played with Sidney Crosby, and all of a sudden his career just went to a different level. He, I don't think he realized how good and dangerous he could be until he started playing with Sid, and he's just torn it up. But I look at them. Right now, they're injury-free. They're complete opposite of the Washington Capitals. They've got their guys coming back now. And... You know, so things are going good. But I look down the stretch. What's going to happen? Is there going to be wear and tear on, you know, uh, Lindholm is a guy that's been hurt a lot in his career. Uh, you know, he sets himself up for hits. Will Patrice Bergeron get worn down? Will Krejci, you know, he's playing a lot on adrenaline and pride right now, and he's still still a beautiful hockey player. But I wonder if he can take it. His team starts to say, you know what? This guy's 30, so I'm going to make him pay. Like, any time you have a chance to start rubbing those guys out, especially divisional or interconference you've got to start playing them physical when they give you the opportunity you've got to take them out and we'll see how they do once they start to have some injuries mount up because once again this feels like it's a condensed season again we started a couple weeks late and i feel like we're having games and, and teams when i look at my schedule i'm having 15 games a month on my tv schedule and i'm thinking you know the guy's got a there there's a lot of games being played in a short period of time and then you take that week or two off that they have for all-star break and what they thought was maybe going to be a World Cup of hockey, and they're going to get that. But no one really takes a vacation. Like, they take vacations, and they, they don't take care of them. And then they come back, and it's condensed again. So I think, as with that 56-game season, we saw a lot of the older players end up with injuries. Uh, if the Bruins can stay healthy, they will remain at the top of the leaderboard, and they'll be incredible all the way through. But, you know, they, they need to stay healthy to continue where they're at because I don't think they can do it if they start losing those top guys. Well, you know what's also keeping them rolling here is is this development of Linus Olmark. I don't think I've ever seen a goalie turn it up like he has. He, he was supposed to be in a battle with Jeremy Swayman for the uh, – the number one spot, and he's just come in with lights out. He just he's square to the every puck. He makes sure that he's he he makes key saves at in critical moments. And uh, the goaltending probably is the biggest surprise of of anything about how the Bruins are playing. You know, one one of the things I look at with Linus Allmark is that he's never been given the credit that he, that he deserves. And you take a look at those awful teams in Buffalo. The guy always had a winning record. 15, 14, and 5, 17, 14, and 3, 9, 6, and 3, you know, but he was always had a winning record. And I, when he played against the Washington Capitals, I go, damn, that guy's a good goalie. I was like, he'd look good in the Washington Capitals uniform. And then you take a goaltender like that that's on those awful teams with poor coaching and poor structure and chaos in the front office. And, you know, just the players that are on the ice so many nights with those teams. They're completely different right now. They, you know, all of a sudden, they're developing their players, and they've got stability in the front office and the coaching staff. But then you take a team like this with structure, with absolute structure. Jim Montgomery, they're scoring goals right now, but he's a defense coach through and through. And then he's a transition coach. And you take that, the goaltender doesn't have to worry about the backdoor play. He only has to worry about the puck in front of him. And there's no, they don't break down coverage in their own zone. So I think he's finally getting the recognition he deserves by having a more solid team in front of him. So it's kind of the perfect marriage right now is that this guy is ready to roll. And once again, you've got a coach that's not going to ever dump on his goaltenders publicly. And I think when you do things like that, your guys lose confidence and it, and it affects the dressing room and it affects the player. So 
So I just think it's perfect right now. Jim Montgomery is a perfect hire for the Boston Bruins. Well, that was the thing that, that I think people worried about with, uh, with Bruce Cassidy. He, he, he made some critical comments publicly several times, especially early last year. And there was the sense that his communication skills were, you know, not as good. I mean, I will listen to him in press conferences and he was great. He answered every question. He was honest. And you just thought he was the same with the players, but there were some quarters that felt that he'd lost touch with them. And you know, the Jake DeBrusque thing demanding to be traded seemed to be symptomatic of it. I don't think that was the only thing. Well, Oh, yeah, and David Krejci disappearing, and then Patrice Bergeron all of a sudden not going to come back and ready to retire. I look at that, there's so many coaches, you know, as we get to know the inside stuff about different coaches, is that you look at, you know, there's those guys that are great with the press. And I remember years ago in San Jose when uh, their coach was talking about, you know, he had an option to come back, and he said he was going to talk to his family, and Joe Thornton threw it out on Twitter. He goes, Maybe he should talk to his players and see if they want him back. <laughs> I just, and I just thought it was perfect perfection because, you know, there, there's coaches that are so good at the media, but at the same time, I'm like, there's another side of this, man. Like, John Tortorella sucks with the media, and he hates the media, but I know John Tortorella is a guy that I absolutely love, and I think he's one of the kindest, best people that's ever been around the national hockey. Why does he do that? Why is he such a jerk with the media, especially when he runs to become a broadcaster when he gets fired? I don't get it. Why, why does he, why does he feel compelled? And I've met John too. And I I like him as well, well, but I I just, I I just scratch my head. Like, why do you, I don't know if he's trying to divert attention from his players or attract attention. You know what? I, I think he's played everyone for the fool is that, you know what? They they lost a few games in the last week, and there was no tearing down of the players. And he just made it about John's a jerk, and now you're not going on the attack of the players, and it becomes that. And I think when he started out in Tampa, they had two reporters. And you know how that works when you're in these southern cities, is that they're your buddies, and you can kind of manipulate the media, the story you want. And they, they want to have insider intel, and they want to get close to the team. And, you know, they're a small group. So you get the news to go your way. All of a sudden, you go to New York City, and there's guys that just want to attack you for the sake of attacking to get some clicks and bites. And I just felt that he kind of over-rotated there. I, and even as a friend of his and a guy that played for him and actually one time beat him up when he was coaching against me. Nice. Uh, I <laughs> absolutely love But the guy that I know, the person that I know, and the guy that he, he bends, like if his players have something going on in their personal life, He's the most supportive, incredible guy. And I think it's become a tactic where he, he's taken it on the chin for the players rather than attacking them. And, you know, I, I think he made some mistakes in Tampa his last year there because he kind of was the other way. He was kind of getting on some of the players, and I've never seen him do it since. And I just think that he, he's an incredible guy, incredible human. And that part I wish would be better, but at least he smiles on the bench now. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, he, he's, he's one of a kind. And for people that hate his guts, if they get to know him, they'd like, they would just be mind boggled, baffled, whatever you want to call it. They're going to think this is the greatest, nicest, most passionate, compassionate, like this. He's an incredible. I remember my ex-wife, when she got to meet him, she goes, isn't that guy me? And I said, just wait. She, he had her eating out of the palm of his hand. He didn't even pay attention to me. He was just talking to her, asking her what it's like being married to me. 
Am I a good dad? Is the guy's one of a kind. What did she and, say? Uh, <laughs> she, 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 yeah, she pumped me up. And, uh, but she goes, I couldn't believe how nice he was. I said, me too. I said, I, I can't believe I used to be so mean when he was, you know, when he was my coach and when he was, you know, when coaching against me, I said, but I absolutely love this guy. And, you know, when I've, I've only recommended a couple people for coaching jobs and I've, I've called him and, you know, and he's helped me piggyback to help these guys. And he, he's just one of a kind. He's, he's incredibly honest. And if he's got a problem with you or me or anyone, he'll hash it out the right way. And I love how he does it with his players. And like I said, his players absolutely love him. And, uh, you know, he's better off if he's not in a major media market. <laughs> so he can oh, just be himself and not have to deal I've with too much all the time. I've also noticed that about Torts. He does a lot better when there's not that much media. Well, um, speaking of coaches, 10 in a row for Lindy Ruff and the New Jersey Devils. Are they for real? You know, I still have a hard time believing it. But when I, I look at their mix of defensemen right now, and they've got pretty, three pretty decent right-handed defensemen. They've got these. Other guys on the left side that are that are pretty decent right now, and and you look at that, they're starting to have these players come of age. We'll see as they go down the stretch because we've seen teams go on, you know, ten game winning streaks and not make the playoffs. We've seen teams that have gone on ten game losing streaks and make the playoffs. So they've got to sustain this. And right now, they've done a pretty good job of being injury free uh, for the most part. And I and once again, I, I think that's one of the the most important things. Is you know, where are you in the injury department? And right now they're, they're doing a pretty good job and of staying healthy. They play fast. Lindsay's teams, Lindy's teams like to play fast, but I think one of the things that happens to them, they also forget how to play defense at a portion of the season. So, you know, as the season goes on, I think that's what I'm going to be most concerned with is, you know, how is their all round game? Because what you have to have a counter punch when teams figure out how to shut down your offense, how are you going to counter punch it? And they're getting great mileage out of Brat Hughes, Nico Heischer, who's a phenomenal player. Dougie Hamilton gets the puck to the net. All this, everything's working right now, and they haven't had that many different players in the lineup. So I think right now everything's going their way. But I wouldn't be surprised if they hit if they hit a catastrophic slide at some point. And then how do they get out of it? Uh, you know, do they eat their own all of a sudden? You know, are they tough? And you look at the size of their defensemen. They're pretty big. And one of the things I do believe in the National Hockey League, you have to have a bigger defensive core. And, you know, you got Charlie McAvoy in Boston, who's not the biggest guy in the world, but he plays a big game. And he's got all-world skill. He's physical. Uh, he's got a great mind for the game. But you've got to have those big guys out there because eventually, you know, those are the guys that go far in the playoffs when you have a bigger decor. And that's one of the things they do have there. Ryan Graves is about 6'4", 6'5". Siegenthaler's a pretty big guy. Severson's big. He's like a Dougie Hamilton's a good size. So I, I think they have all the ingredients right now. It's just when times get tough, are they going to be able to, to keep that team together? Brendan Smith is a stand-up guy as a sixth defenseman. So I, I just look there. They've got to stay healthy, number one thing. And I think the trade for John Marino from the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, – is huge, and it may be the reason New Jersey's at where they're at, and maybe where the Penguins are where they're at, because Marino's a pretty good right-handed defenseman. And you just look at their their decor, and I felt felt that, that last few years, I looked at their D, and I go, "There's no way this team can compete on a night-to-night basis and and be well, successful with the decor that they have." Listen, we've kept you longer than I thought we would. I appreciate the time. Obviously, you know what you're talking about, and that's why Ted Leonsis has hired you as an analyst. Say hello to Ted for me, will you? I will. I'll tell him tomorrow when I see him. Thanks a million, Alan.
Take care, Mike. You've been listening to Gloves Off Hockey with Mike Milbury. Live here on 1510 WMEX, being brought to you by Ketchis Law. Check them out online at catcheslaw.com.